It's so great to be back this morning uh, to worship with you all. Uh, missed you guys last week, uh, and it's uh, as as Steve was saying, and we're we're just uh, and then he preached about actually last week. We're just like uh, groomsmen, or as all the servants of God, watching on as Christ uh, is united to His church, His bride. Uh, so that's why it's okay if, uh, for me to not be here and the church goes on because the church doesn't belong to me it doesn't belong it belongs to god right and so i was uh, but i but i'm eager because i'm also one of his sheep and this is the group that i've covenanted with it's the church um, i'm excited uh, and there's joy uh, for me as i worship with you and as we turn to this passage i want you to think for a moment with me about your greatest unfulfilled desire just think about it for a moment, what it might be. Uh, maybe it's a dream job that appears far-fetched at the moment or a big breakthrough in your career. Uh, maybe it's a spouse. You really longed for, for a spouse, a husband or a wife to spend the rest of your life with. Uh, maybe it's uh, just getting really rich and you fantasize about all the things you might be able to do with that much money. Or maybe you're just a little more hedonistic. you rather live, you know, eat good food, drink, and be merry. Or maybe you're one of those simple folks who uh, just want to enjoy a stress-free life uh, with your loved ones. Whatever that may be, what if I told you right now that I can tell you exactly how you can attain those things? Uh, Then I can guarantee you that the number uh, of attendees at our church services would swell astronomically, right? Because desire is a powerful motivator. Uh, people do things that uh, they seek. And who would be foolish to refuse such an offer? And, and you think that in, in this passage, that Jesus here taps into the desires of the Samaritan woman in a similar way. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't offer her what she seeks. But he peers into her very soul and peels back the layers of self-protection that she had propped up against other people to hide her sin and shame. And then by doing so, Jesus exposes the woman's deepest, most fundamental need and desire, and that, namely, is eternal life. And so it says, this passage teaches that we can enjoy eternal life through the spirit and truth of Jesus Christ. That's the main point of this passage. And I'm going to talk first about the promise of eternal life, and then secondly, the condition for the eternal life that Jesus tells us about. So this unusual encounter uh, occurs in Samaria in a town called Sychar. Verse 1, he tells us that Jesus learned that the Pharisees took notice of Jesus' increasing popularity. Now that's an ominous sign because the Pharisees are already uh, watching John the Baptist because he was so popular and well-regarded by the people. Uh, and, and so they saw him as a threat to their own authority and popularity. And they're noticing now that Jesus is attracting even more people than John the Baptist. So they feel threatened. And, and so Jesus, perceiving this and recognizing that his hour, the hour of his death, is not yet, doesn't want to prematurely end his ministry, so he uh, moves away from that place. He had already had a conflict with the, with the Pharisees and the religious rulers in chapter 2 at the temple complex. So he leaves Judea and departs again for Galilee, says in verses 3 and 4. And in order to do that, he had to pass through Samaria. That's the normal route that you go through. And it says in verse 6 that Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. 
And that's not an extraneous detail because uh, Jews count their hours beginning in uh, beginning with not at, at uh, midnight, but beginning with sunrise. So if you count from sunrise, this is probably approximately noon, which is the hottest part of the day. Right. So Jesus, understandably, is is weary from his journey. He's tired and he's thirsty as he sits under the heat of the sun. And then, so he stops because he's thirsty, and he rests at the well, and, and this woman is there. So read verses 7 to 9 with me. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A woman from Samaria. That's a significant detail because as it tells us in verse 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's a slightly erroneous uh, translation. It doesn't actually mean that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans because as you see in verse 8, the Jesus' disciples are dealing with Samaritans. They're going into a Samaritan city uh, and they're buying food. So it's not saying that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, but the word that means have dealing with is more commonly translated as to use together with. So it's referring to using the same utensils, using the same vessels. So here you may better be translated as Jews do not use the same cups or vessels with Samaritans because they believe that that caused ritual impurity. So they didn't want to do that. And, and in order to understand this animosity, hostility between Jews and Samaritans, we have to delve a little bit into the history of Israel. And, and I'll be brief in this, but... Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was invaded uh, by uh, the Assyrian kingdom. And they defeated Israel, and then they exiled all Jews, basically, of any kind of substance or means or importance to their country, their kingdom. Uh, and, uh, And after having exiled them, they settled, resettled the land with their own people, with foreigners. This was about 722 B.C., uh, Second Kings talks about this in chapter 17 and 18. And so and because of that, and after these foreigners came in, the Jews that remained, they intermarried with them and produced what would be basically a syncretized re- uh, religion, a syncretistic religion, not a true Judaism, not a true faith in God, but a syncretized, it's, it's an intermixed religion. So from this, because of this, Jews saw Samaritans not only as political rebels, people who basically paid allegiance to the Assyrian kingdom, but also as racial half-breeds, because they are not pure Jews. And then thirdly, also as religious outcasts, because they were not holding to the true religion of the Jews. So there is religious, political, and racial tension, and hostility, and animosity. I mean, that's, uh, I mean the, the, that, that tension that existed between them uh, you know, makes... Uh, the divisiveness of the current presidential election, like, you know, child's play, right? This is a serious animosity. Um, and the Samaritans uh, only accepted the Pentateuch, which is uh, the first five books of the Bible as scripture. And so that led to different ideas about how worship should happen. And the chief among the differences was where worship should take place. Uh, and the Jews believed that the temple in Jerusalem was the place where they ought to worship. But because the Samaritans didn't accept the portions of Scripture that talked about that. Uh, they believed that they were supposed to worship God on Mount Gerizim. Um, that's, and that there they erected their own rival temple um, around uh, 400 B.C. 
And then that temple, just about two centuries later, was destroyed by a Jewish ruler. So there's a lot of uh, conflict and tension going on. And so she's shocked uh, that it's, it's, it's remarkable that Jesus is asking the Samaritan woman for a drink. And, and in order to do so, he would also have to share the same vessel, share the same cup. And not only is Jesus asking for a drink from a Samaritan, he's also asking for a drink from a Samaritan woman. Right? Within a generation of Jesus' life, uh, Jewish leaders would co- codify a law uh, in the Mishnah that reflected long-standing popular sentiment and prejudice towards Samaritan women in particular. And in fact, it says this, this is a quote, the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle and therefore in a perpetual state of ceremonial uncleanness. So this is what they believed. Uh, Jesus has no regard uh, for the sexism of his day. Right? And this Samaritan woman, who had apparently grown accustomed to being ignored and overlooked and disrespected, is shocked that Jesus uh, would approach her and speak to her and ask her for a drink. But she doesn't realize that instead of being ceremonially defiled by contact with Samaritans, Jesus purifies everything he touches, everyone he comes into contact with. But at this point, she doesn't know this, so she's probably really um, uh, thinking to herself, man, this man must be really parched. He must be desperately thirsty, really dying of thirst, uh, if uh, he's asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. Yet, in the next response of Jesus, we see that him reverse this situation and to show her not that she, he's not the one that really needs a drink, but rather she's the one that desperately needs a drink of a different kind. So verse 10, is, Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman was at first shocked uh, that Jesus would approach her, speak to her. Now she's confused, right? So she replies uh, in verses 11 to 12, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So her logic is basically this. Even the great patriarch Jacob had to dig his own well in order to provide water for himself and his family. And who are you, basically, uh, to be able to provide this living water when you have nothing to draw water with? So the confusion uh, might be a little bit difficult to understand for us because right away when we hear living water, we think of spiritual living water. But living water, the same phrase, is used to refer to fresh running water uh, in, in, in the language of these people. So, so they, she's probably thinking like fresh running water, so that's why she's confused. Uh, and so Jesus explains, uh, tries to explain this to her. And, and it's typical in the Gospel of John to have these double meanings, right, of, of a deeper spiritual meaning that underlies uh, the physical uh, meaning, the, the, the concrete meaning in, at the top. So the water that Jesus has in mind, of course, is not physical water. So he responds in verses 13 to 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the background for this living water is the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 2.13, God had declared to an idolatrous people, his own people who had been idolatrous, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, 
and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God says that he himself is the fountain of living water. He is the source of life. He is the source of this living water, just an ending supply of fresh running water for his people. But instead of him, his people have forsaken him, and they've turned to cisterns, the stagnant water of cisterns. And not, and not just a cistern, but a broken cistern that can't even hold water. That's the idols of the nations that Israelites were going after. And, and that language of living water is picked up by the other prophets, and it really comes to climax in Isaiah 55, where God invites his people, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, that your soul may live. That's the living water that he has in view, that wells up into eternal life. It's not water to parch our thirst, it's to, to, to slake our thirst, but it's water for the withered and dried soul, right? But the Samaritan woman still misunderstands uh, Jesus. And she thinks that he's offering her some kind of miracle water uh, that's going to permanently uh, satisfy her physical thirst. So she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And it's understandable, right? I mean, if you could find such water, I would want some too. I want it never have to drink again, never have to look for a water fountain again, never have to give up your water bottle at the airport again, and you never have to drink again, right? Uh, so she wants it, uh, but 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 this is uh, uh, this is a problem because what Jesus is offering is so much better than that miracle of physical water. Right? She's settling here for water that will merely quench her physical thirst when Jesus is offering something that's far greater. And so often, that's how we respond to God's grace, his offer that he gives us. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his famous essay, The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The problem of the Samaritan woman, the art, problem is not that our desire and joy for, for joy and pleasure is too strong. That's, that's not why we neglect God. We neglect Him because and seek satisfaction in other things because our desire for joy and pleasure is too weak. We are far too easily pleased. When God offers us supreme joy, right? He offers us supreme satisfaction, life to the full, abundant life, instead we settle for lesser joys lesser pleasures, lesser satisfaction, a lesser life. And I asked you in the beginning to think about what your greatest unfulfilled desire might be, and if that's anything other than perfect, uninterrupted communion with our God, then we're settling for something less than what he intends for us. So let's not settle for water when living water is offered to us or for wealth that we can't keep beyond death when eternal treasures are offered to us. Let's not settle for love and prestige of this world, of men, when eternal love and esteem of our Heavenly Father is offered 
to us. So Christ offers us eternal life. This is the promise of eternal life. My first point. But what must we do to attain eternal life? And that's what Jesus now turns to, the condition for the eternal life. Look with me, verses 16 to 18. So Jesus sees that the woman has still misunderstood him yet again. Um, so Jesus changes course, and now he peels back the layers of this woman's life to expose uh, the sin and the past that she's hiding in order to expose her true need and heal her shame. So look at verse 16. He tells her abruptly, Go, call your husband, and come here. And the, and the woman uh, responds in a kind of, curt, defensive manner. She says in verse 17, I have no husband. Well, she's evading Jesus' command here because her statement that she has no husband, I mean, is formally true, but it really doesn't reveal half the truth, right? Because she's been married five times. Uh, She's had five husbands. And so Jesus responds in verses 17 to 18, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus gets right to the heart of the woman's need. Because we learn here, not only was this woman a Samaritan, but she was also promiscuous. The claim that she has no husband is not true. She's been married to five husbands, which means either she got divorced or the husband's passed away. There's probably a mix of both in there. Um, And so she is seen by her community people as as a woman with failed marriages five times. And, and not only that, she's not cohabiting with another man who is not even her husband, which is uh, condemned throughout the, throughout the Old Testament. So Jesus gently pushes back the curtain to reveal this. And, and, it, so, and this is the real reason we find now that she came to the well alone. Right? Because it was, it was it's typical of the time for the women to come together in groups to the well to keep company and for safety. But she comes in isolation. She comes alone. And this was the reason why she came at the sixth hour, at the hottest part of the day, noon, when typically women would come to draw water in the morning or in the later afternoon in the cool of the day. She comes at the hottest part of the day to avoid being seen, avoid in isolation, in shame. And other women in the community no doubt saw her uh, as a threat to their, even, their own marriages, because here's this woman who, who's now living with a man who's not, who's not her husband, and all the other husbands, and as the women look on their own husbands, they see her as a threat, because they see that she's available. They see that she's promiscuous. So she is shunned. She's a pariah, an outcast. And I think John intentionally juxtaposes the, the encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Because Nicodemus was learned, he was influential, respected, and theologically orthodox, right? He knew all the right answers. The Samaritan was unschooled, without any influence, despised, and theologically heterodox. Nicodemus was a man, a Jew, and a ruler among them. The Samaritan was a woman. She was a Samaritan and a moral outcast. And they both needed Jesus. They both received Jesus' gracious invitation. 
They both were objects of God's love and mercy. And Jesus' insight into this woman's life so touches her to the very core. Later in verse 29, she tells people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? But at this point, uh, she's not won over yet, right? Because uh, with her past and present sins uh, all of a sudden exposed before this stranger that she just met, uh, she abruptly changes subject, uh, and she brings up the point of theological contention between Jews and Samaritans. Perhaps that's just a way of, of, of evading this and trying to establish, reestablish some kind of distance between her and Jesus, or maybe it's, that's her way of uh, trying to show that she does have some relig- religious sensibilities. She knows, she's, she knows kind of what's going on. And so she asks this question in verses 19 and 20. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Now, but Jesus doesn't let her derail this uh, this conversation. And she, he does answer her question. He does disabuse her of, of her false notions because the salvation is from the Jews, right? Because the Samaritans rejected the rest of God's revelation in the Old Testament, they did not have a proper view of God. They did not know God as they ought to. Uh, while, the, while the Jews did, however imperfect their worship was, however misguided their worship was, Jews did know who God was. So she, he says in verses 21 and 22, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But notice that he prefaces that statement by first saying that that there's a new age that is coming when this debate about the proper locale for worship will will not matter anymore. The Jews who had a privileged status before God up to this point that will no longer be the case. The worship will be opened up. It will be given before all nations, for all peoples. And so Jesus says, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And he continues, verse 23 and 24. Read with me. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Um, As those of you who have been with us since the beginning of our series, the Gospel of John, know by now, whenever he says the hour, that's kind of cue for the hour of Jesus' death. uh, Because when the word is used in an unqualified way in the Gospel of John, it always refers to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, that complex of events that leads to Christ's exaltation and the nations coming to him. So that's what he's talking about. And this oxymoron here, that the hour is coming and is now here already, right, powerfully demonstrates that this new age has decisively dawned, but waits to be consummated. It's because the reason for that is because Jesus is the one who brings about this new age, and Jesus is already here. It's as if if you take an hourglass, and it's been turned over and set down decisively, and the sand has begun to trickle down. And it's only a matter of time before the hour comes in fullness. Indeed, the hour is already, in a very real sense, here. So the hour is coming and is now here. It's present in Jesus And in this new age, the true worshipers will not be Jews or Samaritans, 
But the true worshipers will be all those who worship the Father in spirit and truth. And the reason that he gives for that is that God is spirit. What does that mean? It means that, it, I mean, it doesn't mean that God is one of the many spirits. It means it's talking about his nature. Unlike us, who is flesh, God is spirit, which means that God's not confined to time, space, right, continuum. He's not confined like we are. It also means that he doesn't change or decay as we do because he's spirit. He's not flesh. It means that God is powerful, not weak like flesh because he is spirit. Because according to the Bible, spirit, spirit is a stronger uh, reality than materiality. And that's sometimes we don't think about it that way. We think things you can see, feel, and touch, that's more real to us than spiritual things. But the Bible turns that view upside down. In Isaiah 31, it says, uh, God says to this to his people, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And then he says the reason for that is the Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. And when the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble and he was helped will fall and they will all perish together. The spiritual reality is more real than material reality and the spirit is more permanent and powerful than flesh. God is spirit. And that's why true worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And what does that mean? What's spirit and truth and that should really have the definite article before the word spirit. It should say in the spirit. Um, the definite article isn't there in the original text in the Greek, but that's usually the case uh, even when the noun is definite, if the noun is an object of a preposition, and especially if it's, a, it's an abstract noun like truth and spirit. So it's by grammatical rule. It's the usual way you should translate this is to say in the spirit and the truth, not in spirit and truth. And you'd see this confirmed in John chapter 3, verse 5 of the ESV, same Bible. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Same word, the article's not there either, but the translators here render that correctly. They put the before the Spirit. So what that means, then, then what Jesus is referring to his, here is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, the very presence of God, He is the one that mediates our worship. He is the one through whom we must worship. We must worship in the Spirit of God. But not just in the Spirit, but the true worshipers also worship the Father in truth. This also refers to a specific, definite truth, the truth. And in the context of the Gospel of John, this is very clear, because in John 6, Jesus says that He is the true bread, in chapter 10, he says that he is the true shepherd. Chapter 10 and 14, he says that he is the true son. And in chapter 11, he says he is the true resurrection and the life. In fact, John 15, he says he is the true vine. Right? Given this context in the Gospel of John, truth can be nothing other than Jesus Christ himself. The message he embodies, the, the power that he imparts as the son of God. And he makes this uh, explicit in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right. So to worship 
in the truth is to approach and worship the Father by the means of Christ, according to the revelation of Christ, through Christ. That's what it means for us to worship God in spirit and truth. Because Jesus, who replaces the old temple, as we saw in chapter 2, is now the new focal point of worship. He's the one whom, through whom we worship. And, and that's why when Jesus tells this to the Samaritan woman, uh, she, she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She has enough knowledge of, of, of uh, the Messianic expectations, Jewish Messianic expectations, know that these, this kind of change, uh, cosmic change, this kind of new age could only come when the Messiah comes, when the promised Christ comes. So that's why she says this to him. And Jesus says something really remarkable. He turns to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. Jesus embodies and imparts to us the very truth of God, the saving purposes of God. And that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we proclaim week in and week out because when humanity sinned against God by doubting his promises and violating his commands, we denied and obscured the truth of God and a dark fog dawned. It descended upon the earth, upon the world. And we became cloaked in ignorance. But God sends the Son who is the light of the world, John says. He enlightens us so that we can see in the midst of the darkness. He comes as the truth to point us in the right direction, to show us the way to God. And he does this ultimately in a climactic way on the cross when he dies for our sins. Because we cannot make our own way to God. We cannot find our own way to God. But Christ shows us the way when he dies and makes that way, paves that path by paying the penalty of our sins and bringing us, lifting us with him to have fellowship with the Father. That's why, if you believe it, the lowliest among us can have communion with the Most High God. That's why, if we believe it, the most sinful among us, like the Samaritan woman, can have communion with the most holy God. We can enjoy the eternal life. We can enjoy eternal life through the spirit and truth of Jesus Christ. And that is the most beautiful and wonderful truth about Christian worship. Because Christian worship is Trinitarian, right? We worship the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. As a Scottish theologian, James Torrance, puts it this way, he says, Christian worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. Right? So when we worship, it's not just a, a kind of a distant, detached transaction. No, we're being lifted up and wrapped up into the very life and love of the triune God. That's what it means to worship in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, in the truth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You could think of it this way in a more familiar terms, right? The Father sends, the, His Father is by nature, He's giving and He's loving and He sends to us His ultimate gift. And, and Christ, His Son, is the deliverer. He joyfully delivers this gift to us. And the gift that we receive is the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God. And, we, and then our job is to 
joyfully receive that, to revel in that, to relish that gift, and then to respond out of that to God in the way we live, in the way we live. Right? So that's, if that's what, uh, that's what Christian worship is, Man, that fills me with so much joy and excitement. I mean, that's why there's so much joy swelling up in us as we sing together as the body of Christ. We remember that we're in this communion together, that we are the brothers and sisters in the family of God, that the Spirit of God is among us, is within us. I really hope you grasp the incomprehensible beauty of this. Worship, to worship is to be part of this beautiful life of God, the beauties, the glories, the perfections of God. And that's why, as most of you probably heard, um, the Westminster Catechism famously states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And uh, John Piper famously alters this sentence to bring out in a more pointed way the point of the sentence. He says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. We glorify God by enjoying Him. We worship God by loving Him. We worship Him by being united with Him and united with the people that He redeemed. Worship is not a transaction. It's a relationship. It's more intimate and secure than the happiest marriage. It's more ecstatic and thrilling than the most daring adventure that you could be on. It's, It's more beautiful and breathtaking than the most magnificent sights of nature because the subject of this worship, the subject of this loving relationship is God, the glorious God. So when we worship Him, when we gather together to worship, but also when we worship Him through our life and the way we live, we're not begrudgingly paying our dues. It's a privilege we get to be part of. We get to worship God through the Spirit and truth of Jesus Christ. We get to enjoy the eternal life through the spirit and truth of Jesus Christ. And if you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus Christ and you don't know what it means to have this eternal life, then I want you, I urge you to consider the promise and the condition for eternal life that Jesus lays out here. Because as you see in verses 28 to 29, it records that the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Having come to the well to draw water, she leaves the water jar behind to go home because she has a greater new hope in the living water that Christ offered her. If, if you knew if you knew that you could buy a $10,000 lottery ticket right, that you know is going to win you $10 trillion. I mean, who wouldn't do that, right? You would empty your savings account. You would scrape everything you possibly can if necessary. You'd sell everything you own to buy that ticket. Why settle, why settle for Water. Why settle for life 80 years, 90 years? Why settle for the fleeting pleasures of this world when eternal life is offered to us? And sometimes we as Christians uh, can fall to the trap of neglecting and, and failing to appreciate this beautiful promise of Christ. 
And Christian author Jerry Bridges uh, relays the story in one of his books of, of a, a southern plantation owner uh, who freed a slave that he used to own. Uh, and when he was dying, he left him an inheritance of $50,000, which at that time was quite a bit of money, maybe, maybe something more akin to like a half a million dollars. And the, when, the, when the man died, the lawyer uh, of the estate dutifully informed uh, this former slave, this liberated man, uh, and he told him that he has an inheritance uh, from this, uh, this relation. But weeks went by, and this former slave never called for any of his inheritance. So the lawyer called again, saying, you know, you really have money you can draw. You could use this money. And then he said on the phone, sir, do you think I can have 50 cents to buy a sack of cornmeal? Not having handled money most of his life, uh, he had not the slightest idea of the amount of money he was dealing with. So he asked for 50 cents when he could have asked for so much more. And sometimes we act like that ransom slave. We have eternal life communion with the triune God offered to us. And we settle for meager portions. We don't take advantage of the means of grace that God's given us. We neglect his word. We fail to commune with him in prayer. We don't eagerly participate in the life of the local church. Instead of taking advantage of this eternal life and inheritance that Christ won for us, he paid for it. He ransomed us for it. He freed us from sin and slavery to sin. Yet we go back to our chains to flirt with sin and pleasures of this world again. As if far greater pleasures have not been offered to us. Brothers and sisters, we get to enjoy eternal life. It's coming, but it's here through Christ. Let's never cease to worship Him through the Spirit and truth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we invite you to transform our affections, our thoughts, our desires, so that we are able to live by the reality that you teach, live in light of the eternal life granted to us through Jesus Christ. Oh, your purpose is for us. Your saving purpose is for us. Your plans for us. They are so much more wonderful and delightful than anything we can imagine for ourselves. Lord, help us to believe that and to live in light of that, to press into that daily for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.